Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. So uh, I was <clears throat> I was in junior high the very first time that I remember realizing that the hound of heaven was after me. Um, some of the lyrics of the song that we just sang are super appropriate to that because that was the first time I ever could have sung those words and meant them of this sense of I surrender. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to live out the Christian life. I didn't understand who God was. It was just the very first time where I realized that I was loved that deeply and had the ability to be forgiven by a God who cares deeply about me. And I didn't, I didn't know, it took, like it wasn't really until late high school, early college that I feel like I, I decided I wanted to follow Jesus and, and lean into what that meant and started to ask questions about what the Christian life was about. But if you've been, uh, you know, it, tonight will make sense even if you haven't been around, all right? If you're new tonight, that's great. But if you've been around, you know that we've been talking about these different turning points in Scripture. And most of those turning points have come in the form of invitations. We see Jesus or other places where God is extending these invitations for people to follow. and Just like, hey, do you want to come along with me in this journey? That was certainly the case for Peter. Le- literally, he goes to Peter and says, Peter, come follow me. Does a miracle. There's this gentle and beautiful invitation. And so when I look back on my life from like junior high through college, I couldn't have seen it in real time. But looking back on it, I realized there were all these different little invitations, these different turning points that God was, was giving me throughout that whole time. Really beautiful being able to look back. Maybe you can recognize some of those in your own story too, or maybe you're in the midst of that right now, or for some of the first times you're looking at that and realizing that God has some of these invitations out for you. Here's what's super interesting. Invitations though, those invitations all felt sort of like opportunity. I'm going to use that word very specifically. They felt like opportunity, like God was presenting an opportunity to Peter, or he's presenting an opportunity to me in junior high. And oftentimes when we're looking through Scripture, that is what the, the turning points or invitations feel like. But there are sometimes they feel different. And maybe if you were here last week, you caught a taste of that. Sometimes the invitations, instead of feeling like opportunities, they actually feel like obstacles. Like God is putting a barrier in somebody's path. Again, last week with the rich young ruler, it's like this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and just like Peter, he says... Okay, come follow me. There's that opportunity. There's that invitation. But with that invitation also was, if you noticed last week, hey, by the way, go sell all your stuff. Go sell all your worldly wealth and come follow me. Obstacle. Why? Why does God do that? Why sometimes is it opportunity? Why sometimes is it obstacle? We are going to see the mother of all obstacles tonight in Saul's story on the road to Damascus. All right, definitely a turning point, definitely an invitation, but that opportunity comes with a huge obstacle attached to it, and I think it's really, really amazing and beautiful for us to take a, a look at that, so that's where we're headed in the text, but I got to give you some, some pretext is what I'll call it, some context before I get to the text, so, and I, this is apparently a TikTok challenge right now where um, wives will ask husbands how often they think about uh, the Roman Empire, how is that a thing? I don't, I'm not sure that I understand, but the answer is often, all right? I'm sorry, the answer, part of that is because of what I do for a living, all right? But I'm in the Roman Empire a lot, 
And so let me give you a piece of the Roman Empire. I actually wrote down the dates, because uh, for those of you who aren't history buffs, all right, stay with me, everybody. So 600 BC, ask your neighbor about that, the TikTok challenge later if you don't understand. You still won't understand after they explain it to you, but ask them anyway. All right, so 600, be- 600 years before Jesus to 400 years after Jesus is pretty much 1,000 years of the reign of the Roman Empire, an unbelievable segment of history. It's not the only empire. I mean, we have the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians, just, just in terms of biblical history. We've got the Assyrians who had an empire, the Babylonians who had an empire, there was the Persian Empire, the Greeks, which became the Greco-Roman, which became the Roman Empire. But here's what you need to know. The Roman military was unbelievably powerful, took over most of what we would call like the civilized world at that time, and just dominated and stayed in power for a millennium. Okay, just crazy. And and that was the, the time that Jesus lived in. Like when we're talking about the New Testament, it was under Roman rule, under Roman occupation. All of this was. That's the segment of history that we're talking in tonight. Okay, and so... Part of the way that they did it, you need to understand for our text tonight, they didn't come in and just uh, erase your culture and start over with with Roman culture. Um, They allowed your culture to exist under their authority, and part of that was so that you wouldn't rebel against them. So, you know, the Roman Empire sweeps into Bloomington Normal, um, and they're like, hey, you can still have your sweet corn festival. You can still do your little stuff here, all right, your little Midwestern things that you like to do. Continue to do that. And so, You were under the governance of the Roman Empire, but some of those other structures were allowed to exist, and your own culture was allowed to exist under that authority. There were limits to what you could do. So, for example, you know, in the Bible, if you ever wonder this whole situation that seemed really weird between the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to have Jesus killed, couldn't. They couldn't just go out and murder him because they didn't have the right to sentence someone to death. That had to be approved by the Roman government, okay? They had a certain amount of authority, and they couldn't go higher, which is why they conspired to have an uprising and drug him in front of Pilate, who was one of the Roman authorities, so that the Romans could kill him. And so you've got this weird, like, culture, this Jewish culture that's old and ancient and traditional and beautiful that flows out of the Old Testament under the authority of Roman rule that coexisted together. You with me? and, and the, the weirdness that all comes out of that. So within the Jewish structures, you had the temple and the priests and the high priest. During Paul's time, Caiaphas would have been the high priest. That was like one guy who was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. And then you had other priests like Gamaliel who was under them. And then, for our text tonight, you have Saul. Saul, who was a rising star in the religious, the religious uh, sect called the Pharisees really, really important guy. He studied under Gamaliel. He had access, apparently you'll see, to the high priest Caiaphas. I mean, this dude was brilliant. He was zealous. He was driven. We talked about Peter a few weeks ago. He is everything Peter is not, okay? Peter had no resume, none. It's funny. Peter had nothing, Uh, As a matter of fact, in Acts 4, when Peter and John are preaching, it says that they recognized that they were unschooled and ordinary, not Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. Saul was schooled, right? Brilliant. Think of it as like a religious lawyer. That's what he was trained in. He had a long, long resume, okay? And let me give you just a couple of scriptures that speak to Paul's, uh, I'm, I'm going to interchange Paul and Saul, same person in the New Testament, okay, that speak to Paul's background. 
This is Paul giving his own speech later in the book of Acts. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. Tarsus was not in Israel. And so that makes him a Roman citizen. That's not really important for tonight, but if you want to read more about Paul, that does become important to him. Born a Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, an incredibly important Pharisee rabbi, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being, being zealous for God as all of you are in this day. So that's when Saul's talking about his own background. He's giving a speech in Acts 22. Here's what he says in Philippians 3, 5. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now that might sound like a really weird thing for him to throw in there, but for all good Jewish boys, that was the thing that happened and when it happened, all right? Part of his resume. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's coming at this in Philippians with a very different mindset. He's actually saying, my resume, garbage compared to knowing Jesus. But he had one. And one of the things I wrote as I was prepping for this to be like, if, if he had a LinkedIn profile, it was pretty darn good, okay? Paul's would have been. And then I was like, I wonder if anyone's ever created a LinkedIn profile for Paul. And in fact, someone has created a LinkedIn profile for Paul. His experience is received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews, beat it with rods three times. I, I didn't do that, all right? That just, of course, exists out on the internet somewhere. Yeah. So um, I need you to understand that Saul was pointed toward persecuting the church. He believed that Christianity, that, that what Jesus had taught and what Jesus' what Jesus's followers were continuing to teach was in competition with what the Pharisees were doing. And so I'm not talking about him just being opposed to it, like standing up on a stage and saying, be careful about believing these things that these Christians... No, 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 no. He was out approving of their death, persecuting them. In Acts 8, which I don't have time to get to tonight, Stephen is the first martyr in the New Testament church. People, uh, he's giving a speech. It upsets people so much they start throwing rocks at him until he's dead. And the last verse... Actually, the first verse of the following chapter, it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. In the following verses that come after that, everybody scatters. The Christians all scatter because persecution is happening and they don't know what to do. And Saul is dragging them out of their houses. That's what scripture says, and arresting them one by one. They're scared to death of this dude. He is a zealous Pharisee until he has a turning point with Jesus. I need to remind you that Jesus is dead and resurrected and gone at this point by the time we hit Acts 9. But that doesn't keep him from having a moment with Saul. Here's our text. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, that's Caiaphas, whom not very many people have access to. Again, that needs to tell you how high up Saul ranked. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. That's what they called Christians. He found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Hold that in your pocket for just a moment. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord says, this is a turning point for Ananias too, I'm sure. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, not not Judas, one of the disciples, but a different Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, I want you to remember, this is a real story. These are real people. This is a real place. If you go to Damascus today, you can walk down Straight Street. Still the same straight. It's Straight Street that was there when Paul was there. This is, is a Roman arch that has been maintained. Paul almost certainly walked through that same arch in the way through that city in the story that we're talking about right now. Crazy, yeah? But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. Ananias knows exactly who Saul is and what he's doing. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength, and Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Amazing turning point, where Jesus knocks Saul. I mean, I don't know if he he was on a horse or if he was just walking, but either way, just knocks him to the ground, blinds him in that moment. This is not the gentle, gentle invitation that we've seen with Peter or with some of the others. This is a giant obstacle in Saul's path that he has to stumble over and trip over, that God just sets right there in front of him. Opportunity, maybe, but definitely obstacle that sits there in front of him. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would God set obstacles in the path? I mean, Romans tells us that God is for us. You familiar with that verse? I think it's Romans 8.31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, then why in the world would he ever set an obstacle in my path if he loves me and cares for me and knows me and wants what's best for me? Well, let me dive into a couple of scriptures. We've got James who tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you see that word? He opposes the proud. Opposes them. Take that word in for a second. He sets himself against. You ever been on a bike pedaling into the wind? Miserable. Absolutely miserable. You ever been on a bike with the wind at your back? Wonderful. All right? The, The imagery that we have in here is God saying, I will be the wind in your face 
I will oppose you. I will be the brick wall in front of you if you are proud, if you are centered around yourself, but I will give grace to the humble. Then this other verse that comes out of Second Chronicles, I just wanted to oppose it with something else. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you hear that language? This idea that I will be the wind at your back. If your heart is committed to me, I will be the one who pushes you forward. I'm not the brick wall in your way. I'm actually the one who's helping motivate you. You could not give me a Bible character more opposed to what God wanted to do on this planet than Saul. He wasn't neutral. He was out ripping people out of their homes. He was giving approval, standing there approving of Stephen's death. People were looking at him saying, is this okay? And he said, yes, it is. By my authority, this is okay. This is what we're doing now. The crowd had, had murdered him. So what does it mean that God would oppose the proud, but that he would stand behind those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Well, let me give you a different picture. Psalm 23. Some of you know that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, makes the old King James, he maketh me lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters, he restoreth my soul. It's like this beautiful, beautiful picture of God as a shepherd leading you beside still waters to grass where you can eat. But then there's the most interesting little piece in Psalm 23 where he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know what a shepherd's crook is? I didn't put a picture in the PowerPoint. You know what that is? Like that that curvy-looking weird stick that shepherds always have, you know? I know that you don't own a crook. I'm saying you've seen one before, seen a picture of one? The idea is that crook that sits at the end of it, the reason that that exists is because you can put it around a sheep's neck, okay, and yank. So when a sheep, because they're not that bright, is about to walk off the edge of a cliff, a shepherd could be like, nope, okay? It's not, it's not a violent thing, but it's like it needs to be redirected in a major way. The other end of that rod, you know what it's for? Thump. Because again, a sheep's, you know, this is where all of the water is, and this one sheep is like, oh, over there. And the shepherd's like, no. <laughs> and a little thump to the side sends that sheep this direction with the other sheep. And so it's a, it's a tool of guidance, but it's not comforting. And yet, in Psalm 23, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a comfort to me knowing God that you have the authority to grab me by the neck and move me. There is a comfort and authority, God, to knowing that you are willing to correct me. There's a comfort in knowing that God has the authority to set an obstacle or a brick wall in my path when I need that as the opportunity. What else would have brought Saul to his knees? I don't know. Only God knows that. But the great hound of heaven was after him. You guys, the great hound of heaven knew the redirect that Saul needed, knew the turning point that he needed. And I would make the case for you guys tonight that our God is a good God who knows the redirect that you need. I am dad to uh, a lot of kids, but uh, my youngest is Nora, who just turned 10. If for those of you who don't know, I have five boys and a girl. And so, you know, we had, we had five boys without a girl for a while, okay? And we did not expect. <laughs> That's number two right there. Um, once you get past five, you don't even call them by their names. You're just like, hey, three, come here. Um, but 
But you guys, I was underwater when we had Nora. I mean, I just, I did not think I was capable, that we were capable of having more children. Um, Jim Gaffigan makes that old joke where people will ask him, it's like, hey, what's, what's it like having a fourth kid? And he's like, well, imagine that you, um, you know, that you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. Um, it's like, and that's, when we had Nora, you guys, that's what I felt like, like completely overwhelmed, and God, I don't know how we're going to do this, and she is the greatest blessing. I mean, like, I feel silly now when I look back on those seasons where I doubted God or questioned what he could do in me, and uh, she is full of energy. I mean, like, she has an on switch in the morning that just, like, well, I have a video, just like four seconds to give you a picture of what life is like with her all of the time, all right? This is it all of the time, all right? That's her energy level from the morning until about 30 minutes past her bedtime, and then the off switch hits, and she's completely unconscious until she wakes up in the morning just like that again every day, all right? She is a leader, she really is. She's, she is a fierce leader. She has ideas, and don't cross her ideas, okay? And, and I, I, that is a way that God has wired her that I love. She is a gatherer. If we go to a place, she's not shy. I mean, like, there will be other girls playing, and she'll walk up, and then five minutes later, they're all playing together, and she is probably directing them in what game they're playing, all right? And that's like, I know that's kind of funny, but that has been her whole life. She leads that way. And I got to tell you, as a dad, I don't want to wean the leader out of her. I love my strong daughter. I love her strong will. I love that she is bent in a direction, and you cannot unbend that direction, okay? Here's the problem. As a 10-year-old, her direction is often incredibly immature, yeah. of course, here, here's some grace as I criticize my 10-year-old daughter, okay? Um, because she's supposed to be. As a 10-year-old, oftentimes those ideas are selfish. Or she can't see outside the two minutes that you're sitting in right there. So what is my job as a dad? What is my job as a dad when she's using that leadership in a mean way with other girls? Or in a controlling way with other girls? My job as a dad is to be a brick wall. And be like, no, honey, that's not what we do. That is not the leadership gift that God has put in your heart. Kindness will exist with this. You don't have to be passive. You don't have to be passive, but you have to be kind. It is my job as a dad to be the wind at her back when I see her using her gifts the way that God has put her on this planet to use her gifts. And it is my job as a good dad and a good coach to be the wind in her face when I see her misusing those gifts. All of it's opportunity, you understand. But as a good dad, I should be dropping obstacles in her path to make her own life harder when she is misusing the gifts that she's been given. Not out of my own impatience, because that could happen. Or not out of my own sin, because that could happen. Or not out of my own just being too tired to want to deal with it, because that could happen. But out of a love for my daughter, sometimes I should be the wind at her back. Sometimes I should be the wind in her face so that when she is released from my home, she will be a strong, kind, selfless leader for the Lord. That's what I want so bad to release into this world. I do not want to wash out those leadership giftings. I want to refine them. 
And the great hound of heaven, when he looked at Saul, and when he looked at Saul's resume, and when he looked at all of the things that Saul wanted to accomplish, said the way that I can get to Saul is actually, it has to be through an obstacle. This is going to look, this invitation is going to look more like an obstacle to Saul. And perhaps for some of you, you've been so self-consumed that the only way that God can reach you now is by dropping such a large obstacle in your life that you have to trip over it. Obstacles either push us, there's like, there's no neutral position to an obstacle. It either pushes you toward the Lord or toward yourself. One of the two. You have to choose. And I think that's why sometimes God's opportunities come along like that, in that form, because he's like, I'm going to make you choose again. I'm going to make you choose again. I'm going to make you choose again. And he wants you to choose him. But I will tell you that if you choose against over and over and over again, my experience is those obstacles just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger out of mercy for you because he loves you. And he wants you to turn back toward him. And the beautiful turning point that we see in Saul's life comes hugely in the form of an obstacle. I just have one more thing to say with this. Obstacles, you guys, it's so easy for us to look at this obstacle in Saul's life and say, and by the way, I should mention too, you know, Peter's name was Simon, and he, Jesus changed his name to Peter. That's not really what's going on in Saul's life. His, he uses, Saul is sort of like his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. And as he begins to minister outside the Jewish world more, he goes by Paul because that's how the Romans would know him better, okay? So that's, that's why we see the name change there in Paul's life. But I want you to hear this about the Apostle Paul. It's so easy for us to read this story and be like, oh, he was blind for three days. That would really suck. He didn't know he was going to be blind for three days. He had an encounter with Jesus, and then he was blind, period. Did you notice in the text it said he didn't eat or drink? This dude was lost. Because everything about his life to that point, he realized that he had run into the God of the universe and that he had been persecuting and murdering and had set himself against the God of the universe. Saul was in despair, crisis. You don't not eat or drink for three days. We don't, I, could, I don't have time tonight to tell you more of his story, but actually the Christians at that time don't really accept him for a while. He, has, he goes back to Tarsus. Barnabas actually steps in and reintroduces him. I think it's up in Antioch where they begin to do ministry together because there are even a lot of Christians who know so much about Saul that they're like, no thanks. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that dude. It takes a while. Obstacles are dark places. And it's easy looking back to be like, oh yeah, that three-month season was hard when I didn't know what, what's going to happen. But now it doesn't look that bad because you're on the other side of it and you're like, it was only three months. You don't know it's going to be only three months when you're within the obstacle. That's the hard thing about the obstacle. He didn't, he didn't know if he was going to be blind until death, that this is just what life looked like for him now. It's kind of the way that obstacles work. But God drops them and allows us to choose for or against him one more time, over and over and over again. Tonight, my ask for you is pretty simple. I want you to pay attention to the invitations that God gives you daily so that the, the opportunities that he has for you don't ever have to become obstacles. I think he saves those for when you're so worshiping yourself in your own world that he can't speak to you another way. 
I'm asking you every day. You hear, us, you, know, you hear us talk about praying and reading your Bible and doing a quiet time, that kind of thing. Here's what that means. You meet with the Lord in a space and say, God, what is it that you want to do in my life today? How do you want to speak? How do you want to move? God, put burning bushes, just like you did for Moses. Put those out in front of me today so I can recognize them, the people who are lonely, the people who need a conversation, the places I can serve around me, the places that I can be selfless. Every morning you should have a rhythm of your life where you wake up and say, God, what am I doing on this planet with you today? And then you can see the opportunities and God can be the wind at your back. Because when you get so caught up in your own world, the way that he chooses to speak to us then is he switches the wind around. And I don't want that for you. It's a crappy way to live, you guys, with God as the wind in your face. It's not what he wants. And tonight... We have a couple of those opportunities for you. Invitations that Jesus gives you to partner with him. Not obstacles, just opportunities. So tune into this video for a, se for a second and I want you to gain a sense with that lens as you watch of opportunities God might be inviting, inviting you into. Let's watch together. listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.